Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast Podcast, hosted at podfeed.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, June 28th, 2020, and this is show number 790. Well, this week we have fabulous contributions from Jill from the North Woods and Father John, who is also from the North Woods. We've also got a tiny tip from the wonderful Shyamani and our very first review from Marty Gentius. I actually got a fabulous review from Jonathan Scott, but with security bits this week, I have enough material, so I'm going to selfishly buy myself more time and use his review next week. I can't tell all the contributors enough how much I appreciate them stepping up and allowing me to have a little mini vacation with my family. What Chit Chat Across the Pond was programming by Stealth 99 of X. Our next installment will close out JavaScript, which means we will switch gears at exactly 100 episodes. Isn't that kind of cool? Anyway, this week, Bart finished off object-oriented programming with JavaScript as an example language. We learned about the concept of inheritance, which allows us to create child or subclasses. This allows us to dramatically reduce or eliminate code duplication, which Bart says is called a bad smell. It was a very intuitive lesson, and oddly, it all made sense to me. We'll see whether I can ever use it. Anyway, as of the time of this recording, I haven't actually yet published Programming by Stealth since we finished recording it just a little bit over an hour ago, but the show will be available in your podcatcher of choice late tonight or tomorrow morning. You can already read Bart's amazing tutorial show notes at pbs.bartificer.net. I'm thrilled to tell you that my latest video tutorial was published on Screencast Online. Now, why am I thrilled more than usual when I bragged you about these tutorials? Because this one is on Bart's amazing password generation tool, xkpasswd.net. You may remember that I wrote up a blog post recently about using xkpasswd.net, and I told you all about it in the podcast, too. Now you can learn it even better by following along as I demonstrate all of the options in Bart's fabulous tool for Screencast Online members. Screencast Online is a subscription service, but you can get a free trial to watch this video and all of the back catalog. Check out the preview at ScreencastOnline.com and blame me if you realize how fabulous the service is and end up joining the Screencast Online community of members. All right, let's kick in with our listener reviews, and I'm going to sit back and just enjoy the show. Hi, this is Jill from the North Woods. As I mentioned before, I like hiking. My best friend loves bird watching. At some point, we realize these are really the same hobbies, as long as you bring binoculars and the right apps. Plus, if I ever get tired from my fast-walking friend, I can say, wait, I saw a bird. When we first got started, we really didn't know where to go to find birds or animals. We really didn't know what we were seeing once we did find something. But gathering the right sites and the right apps, we started becoming successful. If you're wondering, I see a hundred birds a year near my home. The Cornell Lab of Ornithology is a website for science and ecology. It's a fantastic organization with the conservation of birds and habitat in mind. But they also help the hobbyist and amateur naturalists. You can buy and view webinars and learn a lot of information about birds. It also helps users create lists of birds that they see and track them over the years. My friend has been doing this for over a decade. They use these lists to track bird population, rare bird sightings, and migration. They also help the bird watchers in a lot of ways. 
From their website on the Explore Birds option, you can look at maps and information about the birds themselves. I use their site when I'm looking for a specific bird I've always wanted to see. I find out where other people have seen this bird, and then I try to drive to that location and see if I can find the bird too. I was able to find a snowy owl a few years ago, even though it was a few days after the sighting. Snowy owl was sitting there on a pole, just like the person who saw them said it was there. So that was pretty neat. I also used their maps to find location with a lot of birds, and I planned visits and vacations from those locations. They do have apps of their own. eBird app is for creating those lists. It seems like there's a little bit of a confusion from the reviews about how to track location in the app, and the developer is trying very hard to explain how it works. They have another app called Merlin ID. It is not my favorite app in the world, but people seem to like it quite a bit. You can find out more information at their website at eberg.org eberg.org slash explore is where you'll find the maps and the bird details. And that's where I usually spend my time looking for the birds and locations. The other fantastic thing is they have an API, which allows third-party apps to connect to the database. Birds Near Me is an app that uses that API so people can find out what birds are near their location. It uses that same eBird data It just filters it in a little bit better way. You can filter it by days so you can see how many birds people have seen within the last few days or maybe the last month. You can also filter it by location so you can see if people saw it close to you or a few miles from you. It's really a great way of learning what birds you're seeing when you're not really sure. Every once in a while you do see something that's rare or something that other people haven't seen, but for the most part, you're seeing the same birds that other people, with maybe some more experience than you have, are also seeing. I use this app in Los Angeles when I was only really seeing crows. But at one point, a little tiny blackbird came near me. When I used the app, I found out at that location, people only ever saw two kinds of birds, crows and black phoebes. It was a new bird for me. I was really excited to see it. I've also used this app when I've traveled around the world and helped me identify new birds that I've really never seen before. It's probably the best app I use when I'm trying to identify birds. I recommend it to everyone whenever I see them on the trail and they look confused. Find out more details at birdsnearme.com, but you can find out more information also at the App Store. It's only available on iOS and is free. The next app I use is iBirds Ultimate. There are several price points with different features for this app. Ultimate is the version that has all the features and costs $19.99. You can find out more information about it at iBird.com. It is available on iOS and Android. This app will help you identify birds and teach you a little bit more about their environment, their habitat, their behavior, and show you pictures and other types of information like the song. What I try to do when I'm looking at a bird is I try to look for something very identifiable, like a color streak, or a particular size, or the style of flying that the bird is doing. This app can help me find out what I have using some of these key features. Sometimes it's pretty difficult, because birds fly very fast and they often get lost in the leaves. The pictures and characteristics really help me. My friend is great at hearing songs. 
she's able to use the app to match songs that she's hearing. Between the two of us, we do a great job. There are a few other apps like this, Birds of North America by Peterson or Sibley version 2 Bird app. They're both good. They have a lot of details also, but I really prefer the iBird. The nice thing about the iBird app is everything downloads to your phone. So if you're in a place where the internet's not great, which sometimes happens when you're out hiking, you can actually find the information without being able to connect to the internet. LarkWire is an app to help you learn songs from birds. It helps with the phrases and the songs of the birds themselves. Memorizing bird songs is a really great skill. My friends can walk through a park and hear dozens of birds before we even see them. I'm horrible at this, and I can't learn songs. So it's not the app's fault. The app is fantastic. There are two prices for the apps, $14.99 for the land birds and $12.99 for the water birds. LarkWire is available on iOS or has a website so you can do this at home. Find out more information at LarkWire.com. Sometimes you find a flower or a critter and you're really not sure what it is. For those items, iNaturalist website and app is really fantastic. And it really isn't just an app. It's a community. It's run by the California Academy of Science and the National Geographic Society. It allows you to upload pictures of whatever it is you've seen, and then the people crowdsource the identification. Once people pick out what they think it is, the site confirms the identity, and then you can find out exactly what it is you've seen. You can submit mammals, bugs, pretty much anything that's natural and living. You can also look at what other people have recorded. They also work with organizations like the Urban Canid Organization that tracks fox and coyotes inside of cities. The responses are quick and accurate. I have done trees, weeds, butterflies, flowers, and mushrooms. I like to see what my neighbors find. And you can use it in the same way that people use eBird's site. You can reverse engineer it and say, I've always wanted to see this particular kind of thing, a flower maybe, and then you can use it to go find that flower. They have another app called Seek, and that one doesn't track locations, but it also is there for identifying and helping you find other types of natural things that you want to see. It's really meant more for kids. These are available on iOS and Android. Find out more information at iNaturalist.org. Well, thanks again for letting me talk. I hope everyone is starting to get out there and see nature again and enjoy the beautiful weather of spring. Well, that was fantastic, Jill. There's so many times we're all looking around at stuff going, I wonder what that is, especially with birds. And, you know, I, I got this review from Jill right around the time my daughter Lindsay was saying that there was this new bird hanging around their house and she really wanted to be able to identify what it was. So she's going to be able to check out bo both of the bird uh, identification tools that Jill mentioned. So this is going to be a lot of fun. Thank you so much, Jill. That was fantastic. Makes me want to go outside and play. Next up, we have the debut review, and I hope there will be many more, from Marty Gensius. It's been 12 weeks since I ventured away from my desktop computer, and through that whole time, my Apple Watch has sat neatly in its charger. Time, notifications, and text messages appear on my desktop, so why do I need to wear a watch? So when Wise sent me notification of their Wise Band, a watch, step counter, heart rate, sleep tracker, running tracker, weather, notifications, 
smart home controller, alarm, waterproof up to 50 meters, and built-in Alexa all for $25. At that price, I was all about trying it out. I ordered it on release date from Wise, and I had it in four days. Minimalist packaging, but I did notice that in the box was a I backed Wiseband sticker, making me think this somehow was a part of a promotional run of the band. When I opened the product, I noticed that the clasp for the wristband was not the same as in the picture that I had seen. In the picture, it was a traditional watch loop buckle, but what I got was a hole and nub connector. Putting it on, the challenge with the nub connector was getting the band on my wrist tight enough for me to have a heart rate sensor touching my skin and being able to slip my fingers out from the band after latching it. I've since noticed that current sales of the band use the traditional watch buckle. The band allows for a range of wrists. I'm a big guy, and I took all but the last two holes on the buckle. My wife is petite, and she could barely get it on snugly with the smallest setting. To make sure you have a good contact, you have to tighten it on good, which at first seems a bit constraining, but later in the day I stopped noticing it on my wrist and it felt very natural and light. The Wise Band uses the Wise app that is used for all Wise devices. It's easy to set up the band through the app by adding it as a new device and syncing it with your phone through Bluetooth. The Wise Device app allows you to set the sequence of the apps in your watch and remove ones that you don't want. Then you can scroll through them by swiping up or swiping down. The device will roll through the apps you selected and roll back on the home page. The screen has a little bar at the bottom that acts as a home button. One tap and it reorients you to home. Or, if you're in an app submenu, will bring you back to the app scroll. A long double tap and you activate Alexa. The apps available are Weather, Activity, Shortcuts, which acts as your smart device control, Alarm Clock, Heart Rate, Find Your Device, that would be your phone, or in the case of your phone, Finding Your Wise Band, Alexa Alerts, that's Alarms and Reminders, a running app, and Notifications. You can move the order that they sequence on your swipes or take them completely out if you're not going to use that app on your band. The AMOLED touchscreen looks great, albeit small, just under an inch tall and over a third of an inch wide. It holds 286 pixels per inch. I was amazed by the crispness and color saturation in the screen. You can customize your home screen display from choices that the app has, as well as adding your own graphic background from your photos library. Some of the choices allow time, as well as steps and date complications. One complaint I have is that most of the options have very small font, so with my older eyes, I want to stick to larger font options, and those options hold only time and no other complications. You can activate the device by tapping on the screen each time you want to use it, and there's also a raise wrist to activate setting. It's a bit sluggish compared to my Apple Watch response, and at first I was making big arm movements to activate it, but after a few days I got used to the necessary rhythm and timing to make it work. The Wise Band communicates with the user through haptic touch and vibration when actions occur. There's no sound or buzz that comes from actions on the device. 
Alexa is built into the device with a dual microphone array, which helps with Alexa understanding you better. And I get better action from it than I do Siri at this point. Alexa responds to audio commands, and if asked a question, will respond by text responses. The device has stand reminders, which you can set for your range of hours if you wish to receive them, or you can simply turn them off completely. Notifications are set up to mirror what's on your connected device. I use them for the first couple of days and then shut them off because they became too distracting. Right now, I only have notifications set to my iMessages, which appear as text on the screen. You can set alarms on the device, which are soundless vibration alarms. I set them up to wake me in the morning and after naps, and I was able to wake me and not my wife, unlike the alarms she sets. The Wise Band has a unique clamp charger available with the device, but not sold separately. It will certainly be the most easily identifiable charger that you have, but will also be the least interchangeable should you lose it. I've had a few stumbles with the device. Besides learning the rhythm and timing to activate my watch, I was getting this glitch where my weather app was set to Seattle weather, but when I tapped it, it went to my local weather. It still bothered me that I couldn't get my local weather as default. Rebooting the band fixed that problem for me. After a week of working with this device, I'm a fan. You can't beat the price, the screen looks great, and its functionality is great for the dollar. My hope is that Wise has regular updates to the app, bringing additional app options and more choices for watch faces. It's a great smartwatch option for the user who does not need all the cost and depth of an Apple Watch. Well, thank you so much, Marty. Man, that was a fabulous review. And man, you got a great voice. I hope you do a lot of reviews for us in the future. You know, I, I really wonder how Wise keeps pulling this off. You know, yet again, they've come out with a product that's amazing and yet also affordable by, you know, an order of magnitude. You know, I kind of want one now, Marty, just because uh, you really sold it here. You know, the blog post in the show notes does use my new shiny Wise affiliate link. So if you think you want to have as much fun as Marty for only 25 bucks, be sure to use that link. Also, Wise just came out with an outdoor version of their fabulous webcam that'll work for months on a battery charge, no wires. I ordered one immediately and I can't wait to see how well it works. And you know, I will definitely tell you about it. Hi everyone, Shy here in very sunny Las Vegas. And I have a little tip that I discovered and promised Alison that I would share with everyone. First, what was the problem to be solved? Well, a little while back, I was having dinner with Alison and Steve and mentioned that I came across an issue that I eventually found a solution for. A good friend of mine had just had her hard drive fail and she lost all of her recent treasured photos. Her favourite and only photo she had of herself and her fiancé just after he proposed to her was set up as a contact photo on her iPhone. After a good conversation about creating backups, I wondered to myself how I might be able to save that image for her. Here is the solution I came up with in 12 quick steps. 1. Pull up the contact card in the contacts application. 2. Hit the edit button on the top right corner of the screen. 3. Hit the edit button under the image. 
Four, long press on the image until you see the copy button appear. Five, hit copy and then open up your notes application. Six, create a new note by hitting the button in the bottom right corner. Seven, long press on the page until you see the paste option appear. Eight, hit paste and this should copy the image into the document. You will also notice that this pastes the full size image, not just what was zoomed in on in the contacts app. Nine, hit done in the top right corner. Ten, long press on the image until the copy and share option appears. Eleven, hit share. This should pull up a sliding tab from the bottom of the screen. You might need to slide it up a bit until you see the save image option. Twelve, hit save image, and all the options should then disappear from the screen. Now go to your photos app, and voila, there is the saved image from your contact card. I hope this little tip was helpful, and that none of you ever find yourself in a situation where you need to use it. Thanks to Alison and Steve, and the rest of the Nosilla Castaways for such a wonderful community. It is an absolute pleasure to be a part of it. Until next time, bye. Well, thanks, Shai.、Uh, you know, when he showed us this out to dinner, this is、uh, back in January when we got together with Real Humans.、Uh, I was really amazed not not that he could show me how to do it, but that he figured out how to do this. Having a photo embedded in a in a contact, it never occurred to me that there was a full size, full resolution image buried inside contacts. So、uh, that was really cool, and I thank you very much for sharing it with us, Shai. You know, one of the greatest parts about going to MacStock is the people that you meet.、Uh, in fact, that's probably the main thing is the people that you meet. I mean, all the technology stuff and everything you learn—that's cool too. But the people you meet are really what makes it. And、uh, Father John is one of those people who we will very much miss seeing in real life this year. But luckily for you and me, he sent in a review for the show. Hello, Steve, Allison, and the Nozilla Castaways. This is Father John、uh, calling from beautiful northern Wisconsin, and being a priest, I've always had to do a lot of car work for my three parishes. So my problem to be solved. I am in and out of my car throughout the week. My car has CarPlay, but plugging my iPhone in is not always fun or easy. I think it's a real pain. And so the answer to my problem was wireless CarPlay. I really like my present car, and I don't. Want to spend mega dollars on a new car with wireless CarPlay, or gut my integrated audio system in my car? So what to do? Enter the CPlay 2 adapter. It's a small box, about three inches by an inch and a half by a half inch, with a two and a half inch cord. Plugs into the USB of my car that my normal iPhone would plug into. In about a minute's worth of installation, I have wireless CarPlay. Now I keep my iPhone in my pocket, get into the car, 
start the car, and within 10 to 15 seconds, I hear the wonderful voice of Alice Sheridan and many others proclaiming their wisdom, as well as having navigation and the rest of CarPlay without touching my iPhone. It's wonderful. Some questions I had were about the sinking time to get into the car. Nope, it just works. How does it work? The adapter has Wi-Fi and Bluetooth hardware. It connects with the Bluetooth and sends the Wi-Fi credentials to the phone, then disconnects from the Bluetooth network. It works solely on Wi-Fi from that point on. It works with any iPhone after iPhone 5. It pairs with the last iPhone used in the car, so it'll pair with any iPhone. Setup is easy, and you can update the unit by going on the website of your iPhone. CarPlay 2 Air was a bit expensive when I purchased at $159, but it works with nearly any car that has CarPlay as part of the audio system. Their site lists 36 different brands of cars and the years that have built-in CarPlay as part of their audio system. I have went to Amazon, and they have others that work with Android head units. I don't know what that is, and they don't say that they'll work with my car. Before closing, I just went to their site, and the CarPlay 2 Air unit is now only 129 you can get this fantastic product at https colon slash slash carplay2air.com. Again, $129 now. It saves a massive amount of headaches. Well, Father John, this was fantastic. Um, you know, we posted the blog post about uh, his review and so many people wrote about it that that read it saying, oh my gosh, I got to have this. This is fantastic. This sounds like exactly what I need. Um, by the way, you will have heard Father John say CarPlay 2 and CarPlay 2 Air, but it appears they've rebranded to call themselves CPlay 2 Air. Now, I suspect that Apple's lawyers may have gently suggested that this company stop using their trademark name. But in any case, it looks really cool and 129 bucks. Thanks, Father John. This is exactly what people needed. I talk a lot about how supporting the Podfeet podcast via Patreon helps defray the cost of creating the shows. But there's another way you can go and accomplish the same goal. Christoph Trusch from Germany has chosen to put a reminder into his calendar to make a quarterly donation via PayPal. It comes in like clockwork and is very generous, and it makes him happy to do it this way rather than a more traditional subscription method. If you'd rather go the PayPal route, go to podfeet.com slash PayPal and choose an amount that's right for you and your family to help support the show. All currencies are accepted. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Bouchot, and I'm coming to you from a home away from home on a little uh, mini vacation with my family where we're not even going outside of the grounds of the house. How are you doing today, Bart? 
Uh, I'm doing fine. Having just been rained on for the third time today, I'm mildly cranky, but I'll get over it. Oh, I won't tell you how we've been in the pool. Not made of salt, won't melt. (laughs) Then I won't tell you how we've been in the pool for six days now. Okay. (laughs) You're wet, if you know, it's any (laughs) consolation. All right, well, let's uh, kick in, shall we? Yeah, so starting off with the follow-up section, which is going to be bigger for the next couple of months, let's face it, because we have lots of these long, ongoing stories. The Zoom saga is the first place we'll revisit. Um, the on again, off again, you may, you may, you may not have into any encryption. We appear to be back to on again. Um, Zoom has said that if you pre-register and prove your identity through basically proving you own a phone number, then they will let free users use end-to-end encryption because tying you to a phone number means you can't have five kabillion fake accounts. Okay, so when last we left our heroes, they said we could have end-to-end encryption, but only for paid-for users, which implied that all the free people were a bunch of spammers and awful people. Yeah, and I think the fear basically was that people would be able to just create an infinity of accounts and get up to all sorts of nefariousness. By tying it down to a phone number, it make, it just brings the bar to entry so much higher. You'd have to buy a burner phone for every spam account. And so it's not, not unreasonable, actually, in yeah. this case. They so get there I'll, in the I'll end, say, right? Well, <laughs> Their initial idea. That is the story good. of Zoom. <laughs> yeah, that is, is. What's the saying? You know, If they say something you don't like, wait until they talk again. Sort of like rain no, in, there was in one, Ireland. You can always, here we say you can always trust the American military to do the right thing only when they've tried everything else. But I have a <laughs> feeling that saying is different armies everywhere in the world. Maybe, maybe. All right. So the ongoing COVID exposure notification contact tracing app saga continues around the world and it is very much a game of two halves. Um, so I'm going to start with the bad news and then we can flick over into good news. So Amnesty International are warning that a bunch of the usual suspects in the Gulf, the Arabian Gulf, that is, are abusing COVID-19 apps for mass surveillance. Who would have guessed? Wow. And that doesn't mean the Apple Google contact tracing app. That means the all the ones that are trying to go around it thinking what would possibly go wrong. That's precisely those ones. Yes. Uh, Then we have actually. Well, a good news story-ish from America. The New York Attorney General is calling for Apple and Google to get even stricter on the non-Apple and Google contact tracing apps they allow in their stores. So basically, they want to make it even more use our API or go home. So that is an interesting alternate point of view from many states within the United States. Interesting development. Meanwhile, our friends in Australia continue to suffer badly from not using the Apple and Google's API. It turns out the app doesn't work. <laughs> what? In yet another different. Yeah, I know. It doesn't work in a different way to the last time we heard it doesn't work. Now, if you leave your phone unlocked, it doesn't even change its random IDs properly, so it, it doesn't even do that correctly. So it's just from broke to broker. It's, it's a train wreck. I'm going to insert an extra one in here, Bart. I know you have a bunch more okay. coming on this topic, but uh, listener Desmond from um, uh, Singapore wrote to us and said that, shockingly, his country tried to do their own app and it didn't work on the iPhones and it was killing everybody's battery and they don't know what to do. <sighs> Just a little I know. Data point. There's an API <laughs> that you could use. I can, I can send you a free API that's been really well tested and is in use in major countries around the world. And you don't even have to invent it yourself. No, you no, no reinventing of wheels required. Mm-hmm. The confusion in the UK continues, but I think 
if I am interpreting the weird incoherence coming from the British government correctly, I believe they are now en route to doing it right eventually, having tried all else first. So their goal now appears to be a little bit more realistic, that they want to have a working app before the winter. They hired a formal Apple engineer to implement their new app, and they are apparently using what they're calling a hybrid approach of Apple and Google's framework and their own cockamamie scheme. I think what that means is it'll be done right on iPhone and wrong on Android, but they're not being vaguely clear on that. And they tried to blame Apple and then said that Apple was working with them to make Apple's API better, to which Apple responded, I have no idea what these people are talking about. They haven't been talking to us. This is all news to us. Maybe they're trying to save face in some way. That is exactly my theory of the case. Yeah, they just they need to blame someone other than them. Facts be darned. (laughs) So that's where the UK appears to stand. Your interpretation may vary because, frankly, it's all a bit confusing. Switching to the good news column, the Germans have managed to get an efficient app out there using Apple and Google's API. The Canadians have managed to get a working app out there using Apple and Google's API. So they join other countries we talked about last time, like Italy, Switzerland, Latvia was on the list. Um, Ireland is on the way, not released yet, but again, using Apple and Google's API. So, you know, large, you know... Modern countries can manage these things. If Germany can do it and Canada can do it, I don't understand why the UK and Australia can't. Or the US. (laughs) Or the US. Fair point. Yes. Oh, okay. So that's that's our update on the the contact tracing, sorry, exposure notification saga for for these two weeks. Moving on then to social media companies and their continuing adaptation to both actually no, they're, they're adapting really to three things at the moment they're, they're really i wouldn't glad i'm not a ceo of, of a major social media company because obviously this minor global pandemic contraption the black lives matter explosion and uh, a major and highly controversial election in the country where most of them are homed so they really are firefighting on three fronts which is probably why so much keeps changing and actually, I'm going to say nice things about Facebook in a minute. <laughs> I was going to say, because your first article does, is something that's just so angering. Yeah. It really is. So the, Facebook are uh, trying to walk this tightrope of it's okay to tell some porky pies, but not other porky pies. They've decided that actually we're going to fact check stuff, but we're going to give exemption to climate change denial. What? Why? Yeah, from from what I read, um, there's a lobbying group from the uh, oil industry that has convinced them that this uh, it's O2 something. Anyway, this group that doesn't believe in climate change. And so if they post things that are false or should be fact checked, they're just Facebook is simply not going to fact check it. Just this one thing. I, I I I wish I was better at remembering who said what, but one of the most sensible things I ever heard was from a U.S. senator. You were entitled to your own opinions, but not to your own facts. <laughs> yeah, I wish but I remember I mean, which senator it was. And, and no matter what you believe, 
if something can be provable is proven to be false and is put on Facebook and yet and it's and it's affecting everybody on the on the planet, it seems like that should be something that should be fact checked. But you know, they said was they're not fact checking political uh, people either. It was Neil deGrasse Tyson who said that the universe is under no obligation to align with your beliefs. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't care. Reality just doesn't care. Um. Switching over to the good news column, then we have Facebook has removed uh, Trump campaign ads with the triangle symbol that the Nazis used to brand gay people. Probably good to take that down off Facebook. I'm shocked Um, that they did it, though. Pleasant shocked. Yes, in a good way. Uh, Facebook are also doing something which I think is very clever and simple. I don't know how much of an impact this will have, but it can only possibly be a good thing. When you go to share a news article, if it's old news, you're just recirculating blindly without reading it. Facebook will actually say, uh, by the by, this is an old article. Are you sure you want to share that with all of your contacts? I really like that. I mean, I have been caught with my pants down on a few occasions, but I enjoy the crud out of pointing it out to other people going, that's from 2005. (laughs) Yeah. And here's their latest research, which says it's all hogwash. Yeah. Right. So, no, I think this is actually nice. And uh, was it Twitter last week? We talk, Or two weeks ago, we talked about a, a somewhat related feature where if you tried to forward something in an amount of time that was so quick you couldn't have read it, it would ask you if you were sure you wanted to forward something you hadn't read. Yeah, yeah, that was it. I, I love that one, too. That That is so such brilliance. Because a lot of times the headline, yeah, what you're basically doing is just sending the... Uh, the clickbait that makes emotions rise high and anger and angst and everything. And I think we have enough without not reading. Yeah. Yeah. Anything to any speed bumps is a good thing, actually, because a lot of it is indeed just unthinking anger posting mm-hmm. um, or, or, or virtue signaling is, is the inverse of that, which is just <laughs> as destructive. Yeah. So then the big news of, from, from Facebook is that they have announced what is being described by the iMore headline as huge changes, but, I think that's a fair characterization here. So uh, this is being rolled out in the US first, but apparently, if assuming it doesn't go terribly horribly wrong, this is going to be done in other countries too, um, in other elections. But it, it's sort of a multi-pronged approach. Uh, I, I where, think you missed a, a specific word in your sentence there, what Bart is talking about, huge changes to political ads. Sorry, did I forget to say the political word? That's, yes. yeah, that's really important. <laughs> Just to give a little context. So what are they doing? So the first, so okay, so they're doing three things. Uh, so the first thing is political ads get a, in some contexts already on Facebook, political ads get one of those, this ad was paid for by blah, blah, blah tags. Mm-hmm. And that tag would sort of get disassociated with the post as it got shared and shared and shared. Well, that mm. tag is now being glued, stapled, made irremovable from the ad. So as it gets passed around Facebook, it continues to clearly say who paid for it, which is a big deal, I think. Yeah. The second, even bigger deal is that political ads are now being marked as different to normal ads and the Facebook users can opt out of the whole kit and caboodle. Oh, wow. They can just opt not to see any issue or political ads. Interesting. And so it's not that you can choose like one party not to listen to. You just say, I don't want politics here. Exactly. That's lovely. And the final piece then is probably more of use to journalists, but their their ad register is gaining some extra transparency so that it's easier to report on what targeted ads are being pushed through the platform. Because that was a big problem in the previous election. 
where with micro-targeting, there was a lot of misinformation and stuff going on on Facebook that people couldn't correct because they had no idea it was happening because it was all happening in secret and highly targeted. And so this this uh, sort of inventory of political ads that Facebook have launched is getting even better. And that's a, an important transparency thing for the news media to be able to report on the campaign. So I cannot find anything to argue with in these changes. Yeah, yeah, this sounds good. It's interesting to see the social media platforms evolving under, shall we call them, interesting times. Yeah, I, I think that trifecta of onslaught is definitely having an effect. And the fact that poor Mark tried to be woke about Black Lives Matter and ended up looking like a complete and utter prat probably I, didn't hurt. Yeah, the word poor in front of that when he's not fact-checking climate de- deniers. I'm not, not giving him anything this week. Oh, no, sorry. I meant that was as much sarcasm as I could most. Oh, okay. What is it? it was Kara Swisher likes to say, you know, he's crying all the way to the bank, you know? Oh, no, the poor multimillionaire. How terrible for him. Probably multi-billionaire, I would suspect. Probably, actually, since he's 51% stakeholder, at least, in Facebook. That's yeah. got to be worth a penny or two, yeah. I think so. Uh, and other ongoing stories that shall never end. Just the latest reminder that uh, you need to be careful on any app store, but the Google Play Store still remains a little bit more dangerous because their their model is still more reactive than proactive, and that has dangers. So uh, a whole bunch more fraud apps were removed from the Google Play Store with millions of downloads, the usual stuff. So, yeah. Whack-a-mole. And finally... I just, Sorry, said, I just said whack-a-mole. Whack-a-mole, yeah. To, to some extent. And it's, it's, it's more difficult to whack the moles when you let them... Well, basically, <laughs> the field is open and you go around looking for problems. That's It's, it's easier to miss something than if you uh, have, have a, a bouncer garden. at the door. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it's sort of like a club where the door is open, but you have security wandering the floor versus a bouncer at the door. Mm-hmm. Right. Anyway. Uh, the final thing we have here in follow-ups is a follow-up reaching back quite a ways. You probably remembered that there was a time when the biggest news story was leaks out of places like the CIA. And a particularly large leak was the so-called Vault 7 leak, which was posted on WikiLeaks, which contained documents, but also a whole bunch of hacking tools, which we then ended up suffering horribly as they were abused by criminals, of course. Um, and... We know that there was a report done on how that happened, and we know that that report was scathing, but we hadn't got to read any of it. Well, thanks to Senator Ron Wyden, we now have a redacted version of parts of it. But it's enough to sort of have your jaw smack the floor hard as to quite how badly the Central Intelligence Agency handled IT security. Please tell me it was past tense. Well, the report is quite a few years old, mm-hmm. so one assumes that its recommendations have been at least somewhat implemented. I'm sure they all have, Bart. <laughs> well, there hasn't been a Vault 8, so maybe. Okay. No promises, but maybe. Moving on to action alerts. You know, things to do immediately if it affects you. Adobe released out-of-band patches for a whole raft of their Creative Suite products. So if you are a Creative Suite user, check for updates and install them. They do not go out-of-band for the crack. They go out-of-band when it's a serious problem. So patchy, patchy, patch, patch. NVIDIA have patched a fairly serious 
vulnerability in their Windows and Linux driver. And because drivers are in the kernel, it's always a particularly dangerous place to have bugs because kernel code runs at a really high privilege. So patchy, patchy, patch, patch. Now, is that the kind of patch and, you have to do as a firmware update, probably? Uh, no, it's a driver, so it shouldn't be firmware. Oh, okay. It's a kernel driver, so okay. it, it should be purely software. All right, good. I mean, there are there is obviously firmware on your graphics card, but in this case, it's a bug in the driver rather than in the firmware. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, and then if you were a Windows user and you applied this month's patch Tuesday updates like a good Windows user, well done. You may have been impacted by an issue. I don't know quite how widespread it is, but given how many million people use Windows, even a 1% problem affects a lot of people. Anyway, a whole bunch of people couldn't print anymore <laughs> after they patched Windows. You so know, Microsoft with, with... have released an out-of-band fix for the hardware half of the problem because people had trouble with soft printers, as in printer drivers that print to PDF rather than to paper. Oh. And they're still broken. Oh. Or some of them are still broken for some people. It's not that no one can print the PDF. It's that some people, basically, whenever they try, print spool.exe crashes, oh, um, which means they don't get their PDF. But not others. It's all a bit mixed up. Anyway, the USB people are back in business, apparently. So if you have a USB printer that had stopped working after you fixed your Windows, patchy, patchy, patch, patch, and you should be able to print again. Although I was thinking of the environment, a, maybe print now. Yeah, right. I was I was gonna make a smart aleck crack about the fact that nobody prints anymore. Maybe it took them a long time to notice this bug, but if it was affecting soft yeah. print uh, to PDF, which last I checked was not built into Windows, but my last I checked is very, very old. So I don't know. I mean, it sounds like maybe you have to have an app to do that, and those apps need to be updated in some way. Well, I think the apps themselves were working before the Windows software update, and they should work again after the Windows software update, but I think there's should a bug the somewhere. Word. that Yeah. Mm. I, I think they basically the OS has introduced a bug. I think the APIs that drivers are calling are fine. It's just that the code behind the APIs is broke at the moment. Okay. Worthy warnings. Uh, Brian Krebs on Krebs on Security made a post outlining a really good point. So... A new tactic that is now being deployed by the bad guys is that when they break into someone's account using, say, reused usernames and passwords from breach number five kabillion this week, if they log in and find that two-factor authentication is not enabled, they will enable it and very, very, very successfully lock you out of your own account. So any service you have an account on that supports two-factor auth you should enable it because otherwise someone else could and then you are just completely hosed. I have to confess, there are a couple of mine that I've just been going like, ugh. Well, I like actually that one password tells me when I'm on a site that could do two-factor, but I haven't enabled it. And I say, oh, thank you, one password. I shall take care of that. Yeah, but those are the ones I've been going, ugh. Some of them are too hard. As long as it's not SMS-based, I'm happy to do it. As long as it's OTP-based, I'm happy to do it because one password is just yes. so good at dealing with OTPs. Right. It's the SMS ones that make me just... Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. Dear PayPal, if you would please allow anything but bloody SMS for your Irish users anytime soon, that would be great. <laughs> Thank you. Anyway, notable news. So this... 
this is a story which was on the verges of being a deep dive, but I've decided I really couldn't be bothered. The bottom, well, let's just jump to the bottom line, right? If you buy a device that connects to your network, it has to be from a company that will continue to give you software updates. And if at any point in time they stop giving you software updates, you take the device and you place it in the nearest trash can. And if you live your life that way, you're probably fine from all of these types of bugs, which are going to get more and more and more and more of. So with that out of the way, millions and millions of hardware devices, IoT devices and routers even, have a bit of a problem because a whole bunch of the vendors, rather than writing their own TCP IP stack, and frankly, they shouldn't be writing their own because that's a good way to make bugs. Anyway, rather than writing their own, they purchased a stack from a company. Unfortunately, that company hadn't bothered updating their code since like the late 90s. And there's been a bug in there ever since. Oh, no. Rather a bad bug that basically means remote code execution with zero user interaction. About as bad as it gets, really. Yeah. So there's 19 separate CVE numbers for this suite of bugs. It's not that, like, so they, they wrote this TCP IP stack pretty badly. It's not just a bug with 19 separate vulnerability numbers. For some reason, they called it Ripple 20. So there must have been a 20th bug at some point in this thing's career that's been merged into another one or something. The original library has actually been patched. And that means that anyone whose devices are affected and are getting software updates will get an update from their vendor. So the, the provider has patched the library and it's now to every vendor of the hardware to patch their use of the library. And then for all the users of those devices to actually install the patch provided by the vendor. So again, if all of your stuff is getting regular software updates, you should be fine here. Um, but if it's not, this is the kind of bug that's very likely to affect you. There's a link in the show notes to the security researchers website. They have a table of vendors, which they have broken into three areas and not affected, i.e. known good, confirmed, which is not a positive thing. That means known bad. And pending means we're still trying to figure it out. And as of recording, there are an awful lot of names in the pending box and not that many names in the confirmed box and not that many names in the not affected box. But this is actually just preliminary um, release. They're promising to give much more information after they deliver a, a presentation, presumably remotely at Black Hat. So confirmed is confirmed to have the bug? And yes, un- confirmed unpatched? vulnerable. Okay. So under status No, pending- it means you then have to check the vendor. So it basically means that if you have a device from this vendor, you now have to go to the vendor. Okay. One of them is Intel. One of them is Cisco. Oh, yeah, there's big names in here. Um, well, and, yeah. And under status pending, the first name is Apple. Hmm. Lockheed Martin. If Apple are affected, if Apple are affected, I would imagine we, the most likely place would be the airport routers. Mm. And Apple actually have been patching those even in the last couple of months. Right. You would think that that would so be So if they are affected... Easier. I would expect we would get, and they're in the pending, so they may not be affected. So we'll have to wait and see. So in the lightning this is very much breaking news. category, though, um, at the very top it says the affected library exists in industrial devices, power grids, medical devices. Uh, let's see, transportation, oil and gas, aviation, government, national security sectors, and also IoT. <laughs> yeah, basically, I'm not sure it's the IoT if it connects to the network. Me. 
Yeah, if it connects to the network and it's not a traditional PC, it's probably potentially affected. So this is in the category of we can't do anything about it other than, well, like you say, if we're not getting security updates, how do you notice that you're not getting security updates, though? Hmm. I think it's a case that you need to be with a vendor that's actively supporting their products. Yeah. And so as stuff goes out of support, as it ages out, I think if you stick in the sort of the, the, the more well-watered areas of, of the IoT world, like the stuff that's HomeKit compatible, you're going to be on much more firm ground. Yeah. It should be as well maintained as your smartphone, basically. Yeah, I'm just trying to think. You know, I got a smart uh, uh, smoke detector, the Nest, the Google Nest, when it came out. Mm. Uh, but I can't remember the last time I saw an update on that app. Because it's one of those things that just They're probably auto-updating themselves, right? They may be, but That's I don't know that, is what I'm saying. You know. True, but they would be the kind of company where I, I think it would be scandalous if they were not keeping their firmwares up to date. Yeah, we're, I mean, we're probably good. <laughs> yeah, you know, as I say, stick in that reputable end of the market and you're going to be doing a hell of a lot better than if you're buying, you know, no-label stuff that's, you know, cheap. And you have wonderful people like Wise who manage to be cheap and do a good job of actually updating their devices, which is, sort of, hey, that's kind of utopian. Yeah. So that's, I, I mean, I, I always admire when, when you get to advertise their stuff because you get to do it without any sort of, you know, caveats. It's like, oh, yeah, these guys are really responsive. They, they update their stuff to deal with security problems. Oh, yeah, and they're not expensive. Right. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how they do that. <laughs> they just seem to be nice people. Yeah, but I don't understand how they do this stuff for the price they're doing. We had a review this week of uh, the Wise Band by uh, Marty, and it's 25 bucks, and it does like 95% of what an, an Apple Watch can do. It's, I don't understand. Yeah, I mean, I've been listening to your, to your stuff with the thermometers and stuff. Um, yeah, that's they didn't you know, buy, they're, they're resellers of the thermometer, so that one doesn't really quite count. They did a bunch of stuff yeah. for, the, for the health problems. Um, they, they're selling masks and all kinds of things. Yeah. Oh, that, that's good of them actually. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Um, what have we got next, uh, in notable news? So that is the big one. That is by far the, the big one. Um, uh, next up, I don't know if it has a snowball's chance in, you know, where of passing, but Senate Republicans have proposed a law banning end-to-end encryption. No beating about the bush. The thing does exactly what it says in the tin. Um, they just want to ban end-to-end encryption. No, 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 no. Stop it. Yes. that, that mm-hmm. is that. Uh, we've been down this road so many times that is the perfect way to say it. Let us move on to the next story. Blue Leaks is now the latest of these leaky sites. And this one is exposing files from hundreds of police departments in the US. So mm-hmm. that is, again, part of the Black Lives Matter response to police. Brutality. Uh, finally, then we switch to the good news column here. The US government have announced plans to require HTTPS for all .gov websites. About bloody time, but hey, good, <laughs> I'll take it. Sorry, that's like in the... Wait, wait what? That wasn't already a, a rule? Okay, then. I know, I know. Okay, anyway, look, better. we're going to the right place in the Pat end. We're getting there in the end. Heads. Uh, also in the good news column, Intel have released technical details, and uh, I think Naked Security said that it was a 385-page document. So really quite detail, high on the detail, high on the technical. 
um, of two new security features that they are adding into their chips. Um, they're extremely cool, and they're basically designed to work around a lot of the common ways in which bugs become exploits. So what you'd like to happen is that buggy code causes a program to crash harmlessly. And what you don't want to happen is that buggy code causes a program to execute arbitrary code. And they've added two new hardware protections to stop the latter from happening when the inevitable bug introduced by human error occurs. So the first one is called Shadow Stack, which is just super cool. Uh, the stack is used to manage basically where 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 the flow of control goes within a computer, and the software stack can be manipulated by code. But Intel are implementing a hardware mirror, and if at any point the software one goes out of sync with the hardware one, it means that the software one was manipulated inappropriately, and then the OS can simply gracefully kill the process because it's quite obviously been tampered with. Oh. And then the other thing is something called indirect branch tracking, which basically kills the most common way of defeating address space layout randomization and the no execute bit. So this is just two really powerful hardware protections to neuter some of the most common ways in which malware work. So with, with ShadowStack, it, it, uh, it doesn't kill the process or, or anything like that. It just kills the proce- its own process? Well, I think... The OS is basically, my understanding of how all of these things work is, right, the operating system is in direct communication with the hardware, right? It's sort of the operating mm-hmm. system sits between the software and the hardware. That's its, its sort of job. Mm-hmm. And I think it'll be up to the operating system to decide what to do. But the hardware will basically say, auga, auga, wrong, wrong, wrong. And then it will step in. Or it may simply raise an exception and tell the OS, yeah, that's you asked me to do that. Computer says no. It'll be one of those two things. <laughs> I'd like um, that to be what comes up on screen. Computer says no. <laughs> it's, uh, UK listeners will recognize that as a cliche from a fun British TV comedy. Anyway. Okay. It's a good meme, though, isn't it? Computer says no. Yeah. Um, and indirect branch tracking is just a way of whitelisting basically where return statements are allowed to go. And that defeats something called return-oriented programming, which is a technique that's been used for years to bypass security features. Very clever. Steve Gibson dove into lovely detail on both of these, actually. Um, and because you can't have enough buzzwords, right? So there's only two features, but Intel couldn't call it shadow stack and indirect branch tracking. They had to make another buzzword so the buzzword describing those two features is control flow enhancement technology. Or uh, enforcement, te- enforcement technology, you wrote. That's the one. Yes, okay. control flow enforcement technology, which they are branding as CET. So the brand name to look out for on your shiny new CPUs in a year or two will be CET. And that's these hardware anti-malware protections. You know, Bart, cool. we, this is asking for speculation on a topic you haven't had an opportunity to research. Oh, yay! You, you know how much I love that. Yes, it is one of your favorite things I like to do. Um, with Apple moving to Apple Silicon, I'm wondering, are mm-hmm. we going to be uh, avoiding some of the long-term effects of the problems that Intel has had and pro- quite possibly introducing new ones, of course, but some of the features that we've yes. been watching forever, we'd get away from those? Yes. Um, well, yeah, but yes. Intel's <laughs> architecture has been more affected by these kind of things because Intel has really been struggling. So the reason Intel is so vulnerable to these 
vulnerabilities. That wasn't well phrased. You can tell I didn't prepare. Um, the reason Apple are moving away is actually because Intel have been struggling. Hmm. So the way historically the way things worked is that Intel would make the hardware better one year and then optimizing that design the next year and then make the hardware better and then optimize better optimize. It was a TikTok, TikTok cycle. Mm-hmm. And so you went to ever smaller nanometer scales, which meant ever more efficiency, ever less heat, ever more speed. And Intel have just been failing to deliver. They just cannot get it to work. And so their clock has been going tick, tock, 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 tock. <laughs> and the ARM-based architectures have been continuing to tick, tock just fine. So Apple is making things far more efficiently. And so... To get around all of that talking, Intel have been doing everything they can to make their CPUs appear to be fast. And one way to do that is just to throw more cores at the problem. Just, you know, two core, eight core, 16 core, 32 core. Well, it's faster, right? And the other way is to keep adding in caching and to keep adding in speculative execution. And all of these optimizations are what's been leaking data through side channels and causing this entire suite of vulnerabilities we've been dealing with for the last two years. It's because they can't get the processors to go fast the normal way. Uh, that they're coming up with all of these cockamamie schemes that are backfiring. Okay. Okay. And Apple are having no trouble executing at teeny tiny nanometers because they bought a chip company and they licensed the ARM architecture. And you take the experts in designing chips and an amazing architecture, and you put the two together, and you get it fabricated by good, competent people, and you get really fast, impressive chips that are much simpler, because, in fact, they're even just simple at their heart, because Intel is built around the concept that you want the CPU to be able to do complex tasks for you in a single step. So there's actually low-level machine language instructions, single instructions to say to an Intel chip, do this fancy piece of encryption. Whereas the ARM architecture is the opposite. I will very fastly and very efficiently do a small subset of simple things. And you can string those Lego blocks together any way you like to build cool stuff. Whereas Intel's approach is to be a toaster fridge. Right. And it's really, the more complicated something is, the harder it is to secure. And so Intel's architecture was always going to be power inefficient, and it was always going to be different to keep difficult to keep bug free, whereas the simpler ARM stuff is easier to miniaturize, easier to fabricate, easier to make fewer mistakes. It's, I think, basically, Apple backed the right horse. Okay. All right. Well, good. I like I like that explanation. That's uh, I just figured it was like shifting to a new horse that will have new bugs, but it might not have these same kind of vulnerability problems uh, from your description. Okay, cool. Yeah, I mean, it, it will not be bug-free because there are humans involved, <laughs> right. but it is a much less bug-prone system because it's simpler. Yeah. Okay, good. Sim- simple good. Uh, we may as well keep on this speculation phase because Apple had their worldwide developer conference. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I, I, I'll go into this in as much or as little detail as you like. Uh, but basically, this is news in the making because we can't have these shinies now. But a big focus of Apple's presentations was security and privacy, both in terms of the stuff they delivered in the keynote and in terms of the extra information that came out as the, as the conference continued in the more technical sessions. And indeed, in terms of the PR push by senior Apple executives. So really, there is a lot of very positive new privacy stuff 
So um, there's a nice roundup linked in the show notes to Intego's blog. Basically, macOS Big Sur and iOS 14 new security and privacy features is the title of that post. It does exactly what it says in the tin. Um, some things to note, the support for DNS over HTTPS and DNS over TLS, both getting added to the two new flagship OSs. Hmm. Um, major changes in ad tracking. Um, some changes affecting both iOS and macOS, uh, but one in particular is an iOS feature that I really like. So iOS has this thing called the tracking ID, which is a unique ID for you, which can be used to track you cross app. And at the moment, as things stand in iOS 13, there's one global toggle, which you have to go find 20 million settings deep in that <laughs> maze of settings you so bravely graphed once. That's going away in 14. Every app will have to ask your permission to access the tracking ID. And they'll oh. have to say, this app would like to track you cross app. <laughs> yes or no. How many human beings are going to go, oh, yeah, sure, great, track me cross app. Yeah. So basically, they've killed cross app tracking. Why didn't they Yay. just? Why didn't they just not have cross app tracking? I'm trying to think. Why would Be I want it? I would imagine. Well, you wouldn't, but the industry does. So this is a way of Apple saying, "Oh, it's not us; it's the users." <laughs> Which is no, fine but I mean, Apple instituted a method for them to be able to track us cross app. I'm just wondering. Why right, but that Apple's is method is way less invasive than the stuff they were doing before. There's a history here. Oh, okay. So early in iOS, Apple were naiver. They hadn't yet been beaten up by reality. Um, and unbeknownst to Apple, simply the fact that you could ask the OS what the MAC address of the Wi-Fi card was, that there was an API for that, was actually being abused as an undeletable cookie oh, for cross-app tracking. Okay. okay. So Apple went, oh, good God, this, we can't be having this. And they completely locked down the APIs for accessing all the hardware stuff. So Bluetooth IDs and all that stuff was locked away from the developers. In exchange, they gave them this unique ID and they gave the user a switch to do two things. They gave us two switches. We can reset the ID anytime we like, which basically resets the tracking, or we can just turn it off. And now we're moving to the next phase where it's basically saying, yeah, we have this global unique ID and the user can still toggle it globally, reset it whenever they want. But also you have to ask their permission before you're allowed to. And you have to tell them in the little pop-up what you're doing. No more hiding in the shadows. You have to be honest. And I imagine that will have quite a dramatic effect. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, cool. Speaking of being transparent, we talked a few weeks ago about a whole bunch of new security research basically drawing Apple's attention to the fact that apps were abusing the clipboard, particularly the universal clipboard, which is so cool where you can copy on the Mac and paste on iOS. Uh, Apple responded by adding a simple notification into iOS 14. Whenever an app reads the content of the clipboard, the OS says, by the way, that app just read your clipboard. Oh. And... That was enough to make TikTok have to issue a software update because they were checking the clipboard every three to five seconds. Oh, wow. They said it was an anti-spam feature. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, your tone summed up my feelings perfectly. So already this new, the OS is still in a beta one and already it's had an impact with a software update from TikTok. So good for them. So I'm trying to picture uh, what one password's going to, usage is going to be looking like. Well, one password, password doesn't need to use the... Yeah, it does. I use it all no, the no. time. No, no, but on iOS, it doesn't use the clipboard. 
Um, you're telling me you never it, run into places where you have to go copy it and paste it? That doesn't happen to you uh, all day long? And No, no, but that's me copying and pasting. That's not the app. Um, I am copying. I am pushing the button that says copy, mm-hmm. and I am pushing the button that says paste. So that is not going to generate a notification because the app isn't doing it. I am doing it. So, so you're saying that input. one password does not read the clipboard when you clip it. When you it copy. doesn't, you do. Okay. Okay. A user action is not the app using yeah. the API to read the clipboard behind your back. Okay. Third. I wonder what about third party keyboards are probably really bad about this. <laughs> we were. Uh, I was going to say, we won't be speculating for long. <laughs> yeah. We'll see. We'll know. Another lovely, but sim- a simple, but lovely feature. So at the moment, when an app asks for access to our photographs, we have a sledgehammer to deal with this. Yes or no. They can see all of my photographs or none of my photographs. Wouldn't it be nice to be able to say you can have these four? Yeah. Now you can. iOS 14 has the third option. Select photographs. And you basically get the photo picker and you go that one, that one, and that one. And in they go, to, the app can read those and nothing else until you grant it a few more. Oh, so this is a nice. wonderful in-between sort of thing yet again. Yeah. And more for pro users, this last point. Um, but if you have an encrypted external drive and you plug it into your iPad, uh, the Files app will now be able to deal with that and give you a text box to put your encryption password into so you can mount the encrypted drive on both oh. iOS 14 and iPadOS 14. Nice. Yeah. And Craig Federici did a big interview about privacy and um, there's lots more cool stuff. So really a a nice focus from Apple on security and privacy at their developer conference. Unless you're running a beta, you don't get to play with this for a couple of months. If you are thinking of running a beta, there's an article linked in the show notes called should you sign up for iOS, <laughs> iPadOS, macOS, and tvOS public betas? Question <laughs> mark. It's a really good article from iMore. It doesn't tell you the answer, but it makes you ask yourself the questions you should ask yourself before running beta software. Right. Like, does your job depend on this device being stable? Things like that. <laughs> those exactly those kind of things, and also helps you set your expectation of you're running a beta. It's not a matter of if it will do something stupid and if it will crash how often it will do something stupid and how often it will crash. Right, right. And I, then I, you as a good citizen should go to the radar and file a bug. I think the uh, the problem with the uh, Apple betas is in previous years, like with iOS 12, it was really cool and worked really well. And every single update of the beta just got better and better and better. And iOS 13 taught us, no, no, it really is a beta. Yeah. Now, so far, beta 1 of 14 is shocking everyone in terms of its stability. No. But I don't know if they're grading on a curve. <laughs> because is it really good based on all time, or is it only really good based on 13? And there's nothing to say that beta 2 won't be a, a dumpster fire, right? Train wreck. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're absolutely correct. There is nothing to say it won't be a dumpster, fu- dumpster but, but fire. But I'm glad exactly. it wasn't a dumpster fire out of the gate. That's good. That That is actually very promising, to yeah. be honest. And... There's already a lot of screenshots of the cool new features in use, so they're not spectacularly buggy. So that is actually, yeah, because I know how, how worried you were by the dumpster <laughs> fire that was 13. Like you've been asking for a year off. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, it, so far so good. Hear me knocking on wood. <laughs> Top tips. 
look, this is something you and I both know from bitter experience. It is important to think about what happens digital stuff when family members pass away. So I'm happy that Tidbits wrote a nice article walking you through the process of requesting access to a deceased family member's Apple account. Oh, okay. it's not. Yeah, right. It's not impossible, but you do have to get your paperwork in a row and go through the proper process. So it's nice to have someone lay it out for you Very instead nice. of having to figure it out for yourself. So it's one of those links I have bookmarked. I, I have a thing in pocket called for reference. This is now in there. Mm. And this, this goes in the category of things I hope I never need, but I know that I realistically probably will one day and I will be happy to have it. Right. So excellent explainers. The guys at Naked Security give you an illustrated real-world example of the dangers of a so-called survey scam. So the concept is you get an email from what looks to be a brand you are aware of. Now, the, they spray these out a million at a time, and most of them will land on people who don't have an affinity for the brand they're imitating. But a percentage of them will land on someone who is a fan of whatever store it happens to be. And they tell you that you've been selected to do a survey, and in exchange, you get some token like a voucher or something, something small, something not unrealistic. And they've stolen all of the artwork and maybe a bunch of the English to make it look believable. You click on the link, which you shouldn't do. Uh, you're taken to a website and you forget to look at the address bar so you don't realize you're in an unrealistic place. But the page looks like the brand you're thinking of, and they start with some innocuous questions. And then they do a bait and switch. And so in this case, they, they go from offering a simple reward to saying, ooh, you're a lucky user. You've been specially selected. You have a chance to get one of six iPhones. <laughs> and then the questions change and start asking you things like mother's maiden name or say the password to your email address. Oh, jeez. Or send us 10 euro for shipping for your free iPhone. You see how this goes off the rails quickly. Yeah. So they give you basically a real world example. So they actually have a bunch of canary email addresses that they monitor for what's actually happening in the world, which is why they can report on these things. And one of their Australian canary emails got hit with a, one of these schemes. And they just take you through screenshot by screenshot of how this works. And they point out to you what red flags you should be looking for. So it's actually really good to train yourself how the mentality of these things, right? Start off with something plausible and then slowly do a bait and switch. Hmm. It's interesting. You know, um, in, uh, in a, a sideways story to that kind of thing, I was talking to someone whose company purposely sends them phishing emails. Yes, and this they, is quite common. I had never heard of this before. And uh, they said that if you, if you click on a link in one of them, more than one, as soon as you hit two, a letter goes mm -hmm. to your boss. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's variants of this. So you can actually buy it as a service. Where So you can pay a security company to attempt to fish your employees, say, three times a year or whatever. It's actually, you can buy it as a service. <laughs> so when I go to a security, con when I go to just actually playing tech conferences, there's very often vendors selling this kind of blue team hacking, really. Yeah, that's a, that's a great idea. And it's idea. very effective. It's yeah, this person got caught idea. once and they said, you can bet I will never click a link in anything ever again because I don't want that letter to my exactly. boss. Exactly. And usually what they're selling is a suite of products. So the first thing they'll, they'll do is they'll come in and do an awareness training session with your employees and sort of forearm them. And they will then assume that a vast majority of people will be gone in one ear and out the other. And then they'll do a few attacks and see what happens. And very often it's the managers who come out of it looking <laughs> worse. Anyway, no, it's it's great. It's it's a very good thing to do, and it's quite common. And a lot of them have 
the well implemented ones have those kind of things where you get you get away with it once and you get sent an automated help link or something, and the hope is that that's enough to get you to go, ooh, ah, I see. But if you get caught twice, then usually there's a consequence that's more serious, like emailing your boss or whatever. Yeah, it's a good approach. Um, another thing, another excellent explainer is one to listen to. There is a wonderful new podcast. No, sorry. There is a wonderful podcast I have newly discovered called Shortwave. It's never longer than about 15 minutes or so, but it is every weekday from NPR. It's a science topic, but science quite broadly interpreted. And one of the days this week, they looked into why did IBM, Amazon, and someone else who's lose me at the moment, stop selling facial recognition technology. Uh, Google did what? originally, right? Because Google had Maybe that was their, the third one. I know there were big crazy. names involved. I think it yeah. was. Like, why? Why is this an issue? And it's a, it's 14 minutes and 43 seconds of memory. So it's basically, it's about a 15-minute episode. Very, very few ads. And they just explain to you the problems with it and why this is actually something you should care about. It's just really well done. And I would suggest scrolling through their back episodes for topics you're interested in, because so far, 100% of episodes I've listened to have been really well done, really well produced, uh, short, to the point, accurate, interesting, and fun, which is quite impressive. In terms of interesting insights, then, um, if you work in the corporate world, I am sorry to say that uh, Naked Security are reporting on a new trend. The cybercriminals have found a new way to part corporations from their money through fraudulent means. So we've heard of the concept of sex extortion, where you either pretend to or actually enable people's webcams and get some compromising images. Well, now there's something called breach extortion. So not only do you deploy traditional crypto malware, where you deprive people access of their data and make them pay you a ransom to give you back the data that was theirs originally. You also exfiltrate the data back to your own servers as the bad guy and then extort them with it, saying, if you don't pay us, not only will you not get it back, but we'll publish it. Huh. So we will make you a big data breach. Yikes. Yeah, so even more reason to do all of the security best practice to train your staff on how to spot phishing by paying someone to fish them innocently so they get practice. Right. Right. All of those things, because this is yet another way that real companies are being parted with hard-earned money. And then I have another audio recommendation. This one is different to the previous one. So the previous one, short, fun, interesting. This is also interesting, but it's not short and it's not fun. So the BBC have a series called The Real Story, which is in-depth, technical. I believe the colloquial term in the US is wonk. This is one for policy wonks. Oh, okay. Uh, and the topic that they tackled last weekend in their 50-minute show is, is this the internet we always wanted? It looks at technical issues. It looks at technical ways forward. It looks at societal issues. It looks at the social media question. Broad-ranging, well-informed experts, different points of view, having a reasoned discussion and not shouting at each other. Oh, that's nice. It's nice, but it's not exciting. It's not hip. It's not fun. It doesn't have a soundtrack. <laughs> it's wonky, but it is extremely high quality. 
Oh, neat. So if, if that's okay, then I would definitely recommend that episode. And then finally, a story in the Just Because It's Cool segment. Uh, there have been all sorts of techniques for attempting to eavesdrop on people remotely without the need to sneak equipment in, right? I mean, the easiest, I guess, the simplest way to eavesdrop is sneak a microphone with a transmitter into the place you want to eavesdrop and then listen to the signal. But that's harder and harder and harder to do. Uh, so there were techniques in the past where if you if there was a balloon in the room and if you could get line of sight to that balloon and you had an infrared laser, you could point a laser dot onto the balloon. And as people in the room spoke, their voices would wiggle the balloon teeny tiny amounts and your laser beam would jiggle a bit and you could pick that up remotely with a camera and you turn the balloon into a microphone. Except but that involved you sneaking balloons. a balloon into... <laughs> yeah. It involved you sneaking a balloon in and you proactively shining a laser in, which if you're doing that to a high-value target, they may be looking out for lasers being pointed at them. So some researchers in um, Israel wondered, is there something else in many rooms that would just be there and that we wouldn't need to shine a laser on? And they realized that the answer is light bulbs. So they literally had a light bulb moment. Hmm. So if you have a direct line of sight of a light bulb and a high enough resolution camera in terms of time and in terms of accuracy of light recording, the teeny tiny vibrations of sound waves hitting the light bulb will cause the light to jiggle. And if you can pick up the jiggle of the light, you can reverse engineer the sound wave. The light bulb is a microwave. Sorry, not as a microphone. There is one very simple defense against this. It's called a lampshade. <laughs> but if there's a bare light bulb, this works. It's really cool science. I don't know how much sleep the CIA will be losing over this in real life. As I say, lampshades may become compulsory. Um, but I thought it was really cool science. That's really so funny. And finally, I have a palate cleanser that has nothing to do with security or technology. Well, it has something to do with technology, but different, older technology. Um, one of the things I always wish I knew more about is typefaces. I can appreciate a good typeface when I see one, but I don't understand enough about it to understand why I like it, to use any sort of English words to describe a typeface to someone else. But I know it's a big deal and I know it makes a big difference and I appreciate it when it's done right and I hate it when it's done wrong. Anyway, if you want to get a brief history of typography, there's a wonderful, I think it's a seven minute video that was linked over on Loop Insight. And it's really fun. It's really playful. And you learn stuff. And I now understand why Helvetica is considered hallowed ground. I, so I'd be curious to watch this because it, it sure seems like it's an opinion. But this isn't giving you opinion. This is explaining the history of typefaces. And when you see the history, you'll understand that some fonts change the world and some fonts are just me too fonts. Hmm. Okay. But it's not about why we like one over the other? No, it's about how they've changed and what drove those changes. So basically, it started off imitating handwriting. The first typefaces were just like a scribe would write because, well, that's always the case, right, with new technology. The first radio programs were basically stories read out loud. The first TV shows were radio plays with a camera. When we get a new technology, we do the old thing in a new way, and then we realize that there's better ways to do the new thing. And so the oldest typefaces were very handwriting-like. And then 
people realize that they're actually quite hard to read. And so they morphed and changed over time. And so Baskerville will be a, a seminal font in the process. And then as we got to more modern times, the serifs were lopped off and the shapes were simplified. And so an earth shattering font in terms of how different it was to everything came before was Futura, where instead of it being flowing shapes, it was geometric shapes. And Gil Sands followed on from that. And then Helfeke comes at the screen. So I, I really learned a lot. And I suddenly understood that there are some fonts that are different. They're, they're like the Ford Model T of fonts. Huh. You know, they're the ones that made a, a sea change and then everyone else followed. You know, from smartphone to iPhone, sorry, from dumb phone to iPhone sort of changes. And they happen in fonts too. I really loved it. I say seven minutes. I learned so much. It was fun. That does sound like fun. And that's a video, so you actually get to see it too, right? You get to see it. And it's also not just do you see all the fonts, which is really helpful. And when people are, you know, describing what a what a serif is, it's much easier to see. It's also very playfully created. You see some hands manipulating cutouts of things over a board. And every time that font is replaced, you see the hand come in and just wipe everything away. <laughs> you have a clean sheet and the next one gets put out. It's really nicely done. <laughs> I like that kind of stuff. Well, this was good, even though we didn't uh, have any uh, real deep dive. Well, I guess we had one there, but uh, no, no, we didn't even have a deep dive. But we had lots of little dives that were pretty interesting, I think. Yeah, it was it was a fun show. So, uh, And the news gods were kind because I, I was a bit pressed for time because we're recording a day early and I was afraid I'd open my RSS reader and find chaos. And <laughs> no, it was fine. All right. Well, I appreciate it. And uh, I guess I'll be talking to you tomorrow on another show. But uh, for the audience, uh, we'll talk to you again in two weeks. Indeed, we shall. And until then, remember to stay patched so you stay secure. Well, that's going to wind us up this week. Again, thank you so much to the reviewers for let me, letting me have a little vacation. That really uh, meant a lot. And everybody has to count on the NoSillaCast always comes out. Don't, don't you forget it. Also, don't forget to send in your dumb questions. We haven't had a good dumb question in a long time. These are questions that are you think are stupid and that everybody else probably knows the answer to. And you'll find out when you ask them that a lot of other people don't know the answer to also. So come up with some dumb questions. I like doing those. You can also send comments and suggestions by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at podfeet. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. You want to use Patreon to support the show? Podfeet.com slash Patreon. Want to use PayPal like Christoph did? Podfeet.com slash PayPal. Want to join our Slack community where you can talk to Bart and people about programming and security bits and all kinds of just silly things too? Join our Slack at podfeet.com slash Slack. And if you want to join our Facebook community, that's podfeet.com slash Facebook. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.